Now, we are uh, in the book of Hebrews, and it's interesting when you think about it, uh, this book, the book of Hebrews is a book that, that has, goes from one extreme to another. I mean, it has the highest highs, and it has, in a couple places, the lowest lows, which is the complete experience, and I love that about it. And today, we're going to look at one of the lowest lows. Now, sometimes we look like earlier uh, um, this year as we were going through it, we were looking at Jesus, and Jesus is greater than angels, and he became lower than angels so that he could accomplish our salvation. And he's and it, there, I tell you, honestly, there's a couple times where in studying this or even up here talking about it, it's like I, I, get, I get excited. I get excited about what God has done for us and, and the, the salvation that we have. And it's like I want to, you know, hallelujah, break out into the hallelujah chorus. And then there's times <clears throat> where it's just like, oh, not, it's not that it's bad. It's that it, it can be hard and it deals with hard truths. And today we are going to look at one of those hard truths. Uh, now, just a reminder about where we, we're coming from. The writer has been focusing on Jesus just as I said, he's better, he's better, he's better. He's the greater high priest. And now uh, he changes directions briefly. Uh, it's, it's called an excursus. I call it a rabbit trail. That's what we know it by is a rabbit trail. But he jumps off onto, <clears throat> excuse me, what seems like a tangent. But it's not necessarily a tangent in, in that sense because he realizes in teaching them these highs and in teaching them the responsibilities that come with these highs and all of that, he realizes there are some who are really struggling. There are some who are struggling because of difficulties and tragedies. Some, and, and at this time, uh, again, we mentioned this before, Emperor Nero is the Caesar. He's on the throne. And so there are some that, that it seems like they are experiencing persecution. And, uh, and so what's happening? They're they're, they're Jews who have become Christians. They don't stop being Jews when they're Christians, but they're Jewish people who've become Christians, and they're starting to, to doubt, or they're starting to wonder, should we go back to the old ways? You know, maybe this is not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing difficulties. Maybe I'm going the wrong, and they're, and they're struggling. And he, can, he, at times, is very sensitive and comforting to them, and even in this passage, there will be some of that. But also, he realizes somebody needs to get in their face and tell them the truth. And so earlier, we looked at that. He says, hey, you guys are supposed to be mature, and you're dealing, you're, you're struggling with elementary things. This is, you need, to, you need to move on to maturity. And so it fits in. He, he, in the middle of this, of this teaching on Jesus, he realizes, I got to talk about this. And so he, he does this, and I'm going to read the passage for you. This is Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 12, and, uh, and you can follow along in your Bible, on your phone, or, or just listen. Here we go. It is impossible. Wow, what a start. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. 
Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped other people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that you may, you, so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit, inherit what has been promised. All right, so I want to tell you something in studying for this passage. In studying for <laughs> this is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible. This is in that biblical top 10 of hard things to figure out. Uh, sometimes passages can be hard because they're alluding to things that maybe we don't quite understand were going on in that day. Sometimes passages are hard because as you transition from Greek into English, it is very hard oftentimes to translate and to get it right. Sometimes passages are hard for just a number of reasons. And this is, this is one of them. And when you read this passage, hey, we just read that passage. And I'm telling you, the first time I ever read that passage, I first thing I said was, oh my goodness. What the heck's going on here? This is scary. This is kind of scary. And what I noticed as I'm studying and I'm reading commentaries and I listen to some people that I really respect and some, some professors, uh, theologians at different, different uh, uh, seminaries, this is, a, this is a series of verses that get kind of breezed over oftentimes. They just kind of run right past it because it brings up hard things. And I believe in expository preaching. That is taking a book and preaching it, running through it verse by verse, no skipping. And, and what that does is it forces you to address the difficult issues. And we are going to do that today. If you are a guest here today, this is a little different than most of our, our, our sermon, most of the sermons that, that are preached up here, but it is something that we have to deal with. It's hotly debated. It is very disputed. And I go into this knowing that there are good and godly women and men who interpret this differently than I do. And I understand that. And so I, I don't wanna, I don't wanna act like what I'm going to teach you, no one disagrees with, because that's not true. Lots of people disagree, and they're all over the place on this. I don't also want to do other things that I see happening. Oftentimes, people come to a passage of Scripture, and they have in mind what they believe absolutely. And if that Scripture seems to disagree with what they believe, they work it. They go through what I call verbal gymnastics to make it fit with what they believe. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I see that happening sometimes. I saw that happen with this passage. I think it's wrong. I don't want to do that. But I know that, that I'm also, you know, I can be guilty of it if I'm not careful with how, how I interpret. I don't want to be ignorant of my biases. Also, there's a message here that can get obscured by all the debates. All the debates that rage about the meaning of the passage, and sometimes people miss, this passage is written to give us something that we need. All right? So, here we go. First of all, when we deal with a text, we understand the context. This is written as a part of a whole book, so we have to understand what's been said before, because that helps us understand what's being said now. So, what's been said before? Jesus is better. What's been said before? Some of you are starting to drift. Don't drift. Don't slide, don't quit, don't miss 
And at one passage, he talks about God's rest. And he says, don't miss God's rest like the Israelites did in Numbers 14. All right, Numbers 14. We talked about this before, but just a quick reminder. They sent 12 spies into the land. Two came back. Ten, all 12 came back. Ten came back and said, we can't take it. It's beautiful land. It's awesome. It's, it, is, it is the land of milk and honey. Um, for those of you that do vegetables, the land of milk and honey. Right? Just, right? It's the land of milk and honey. It's beautiful land. It's wonderful land. But the people there, we can't handle the people there. They're too powerful. And two came back and said, yes, we can, because God is going to do it for us. We don't have to trust our strength. We have to trust God. And the people of Israel said, no, we're not going in. We want to go back to Egypt. They refused God's offer for rest. And God said, okay, you don't want my rest. You're going to wander around the wilderness for 40 years, and your children are going to get it. I'm going to give it to your children. So he says, don't forget that. In the midst of this, because that, also impacts this passage. All right, so the first, first thing we're going to see, an extreme situation. This is, this is an extreme. I, I want you to understand, this is not a normal situation. This is not a situation that happens very often. This is extreme. All right, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away, to be brought back to repentance. It's impossible to bring them back to repentance, he's saying. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to disgrace. So, what are we looking at here? What do people say? What are our options here? Here's option one. Option one is, and there's a, there's a, good group, a large group of people that take this. They say these people that are being described were never really Christians. They were never really Christians. They never really gave themselves to God. They were false believers. Now, I believe this happens. Our country has a huge amount of people who claim to be saved, and I think a significant number of them, quite possibly, I am not the one to do that judging, but probably are not. They're faking it. They totally misunderstand what salvation is, whatever. But this passage, a lot of people say that's an example of this. The other camp, the other, one of the other big camps, there's about two or three, there's three. There are, these are genuine believers, but have strayed so far that they have lost their salvation. It's impossible to bring them to repentance. And there's many that say that's what it is. Now, let's face the truth. For most people, um, for me, I mean, you know, our first, at first blush, I want this to be talking about non-Christians. I really want this to be talking about non-Christians. If you have people in your life, maybe a parent, maybe a child, maybe a grandparent, maybe a friend, someone you're close to, who are not Christian or have wandered from the faith, you are desperately hoping that this is not a description of them. You're desperately hoping that. I am, all right? So that's what we want. But I don't think that's true. I think this is talking about people who are really Christians. But also, I believe this passage, which many people interpret, and I said it was one of the two, is not about losing your salvation. It's not about either of those. So let's talk about, there's a third option. And the first the reason I say that is, we have to look at the context here, what was said previously that would influence, influence this. He's been talking to them. Earlier in the book, he says, brethren, 
brethren and sistren, whatever. He says that, he includes them. He says, we're believers. See, that's, that's the problem. He tells, them, he tells them, you should be teachers. You're not gonna say that to somebody who's not a Christian. He's telling them this. In, in, verse, uh, in, in chapter six, the very first verse of this passage, we didn't look at it, we looked at it last week. He says, let us move on. He says, I'm including myself with you on this. So I don't think they're not Christians because the writer is definitely a Christian. The second idea in the context is don't fall away. Don't fall away. This is, oh, he says it earlier and he says it in this passage. He says, and here's the, here's the thing. If you're falling away, what are you falling away from? Whom are you falling away from? If you're falling away, you have to have been something previously. So I think that points to the fact that these are Christians here. Uh, there's other, and I'm not going to go into all of them because it just goes on and on ad infinitum. But here we go. Let's just get, look at a couple of the words that are used here. He says, those who have once been enlightened. That word enlightened in the Greek means to bring to the light. It means to give guidance or understanding. They have been brought to the light. Then he says, who have tasted the heavenly gift. Now, this word tasted, and this is, I say this because I, I'm dealing with what I've read in some, all right, don't equate this with Costco and samples, all right? Because this is what I read in a couple of, in a couple of, they said, ah, what it means is they tasted, but they didn't swallow. Now, that's what I, that's what I say, that's what I, oh, I should be careful, I'm not trying to be too harsh. To me, that's, Word gymnastics, right there. To say you tasted, but you didn't swallow. That's saying, it's like Costco. There are salvation samples that you can take and go, and then make your decision on it. I don't think that's true. There's another reason I don't think that's true. is because in chapter 2, he said Jesus tasted death. And he uses the exact same word. And Jesus didn't sample death. He died. He died. So, he says that, not that word tasted. And it's to come to know something, to experience something. Shared, it says here, who have shared in the Holy Spirit. That word shared means to be a partner. It's a word that's used with two people. Form a business. It's 50-50. They're in it together. They both are in it. It's tasty. He says they've tasted the goodness of the word of God. Same word for taste. And they've tasted the power. They've seen God work in their lives. So I believe this is talking about a Christian, not a fake Christian. And now, now is when it gets rough, okay? This is, this is the part that makes people go, oof, this is hard. All right? He says in verse 6, we have these people. I believe they're Christians. And he says, and they've fallen away. They've fallen away. And it, that tags on with the beginning of verse 4. For It's basically saying it is impossible for those to be, and have fallen away, to be brought back to repentance. And that's a tough thing for us. So if we're going to look at that, we have to figure out what does fallen away exactly? What does it mean? And this is where it gets extreme because the writer is going to, he's going to make it so extreme that we understand how powerful this is. It says here, and who have fallen away in verse 6, to be brought back to repentance. 
to their loss, okay? He's saying they're the ones, they're losing something to their loss. They are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. And this is not someone just sinning. This is not someone just not following Christ. They have gone so far that it's as if they are crucifying Christ. And, and, and the way it's written in the Greek, it has this, it, this it, it pushes it towards again and again and again and again and again. Habitual evil that does God such harm. And it says, and it's subjecting him to public disgrace. So it's very public. It's very public. It's public and it's incredibly evil. It seems to be a falling away that is characterized by antagonism, by hatred. The idea of purposely and publicly attacking the cause of Christ seems to be actively trying to lead others astray in a very vindictive manner. So understand this, because here's what happens. Everybody tends to go, I screwed up the other day. Is it me? Right? It's extreme. It's very extreme. And he's phrasing it in a way that shows how extreme it is. And the scariest part is, he says, it's impossible for those to be brought back to repentance. Again, we have to look and say, what do words mean? What's the word impossible mean? And the Greek word there, it means impossible. And it is used about 12 times in the New Testament. Every time it's used, it is illustrating the impossibility of a human being to do something that God can do. Every time it points to the person, that person. So it seems to be the impossibility rests upon that person. Now, why would it be impossible for that person? And I think here the key thought is this is an illustration of a person who's fallen so badly, fallen so badly, their heart has become hardened. So it's, they don't, they couldn't repent if, and the thing is, I, I want to say they couldn't repent if they wanted to, but the point is they'll never want to. They have gone so far that they're out, they're gone. And it's not that God doesn't have the power of, of when someone repents of forgiving them, it's that they won't do it. They won't do it. Now, this is a worrying passage because we're not talking about fake Christians. But let me tell you also what we're not talking about, all right? We're not talking about Christians who sin. We're not talking about Christians who struggle with sin in their lives, their whole lives. Praise the Lord. Isn't that great? Because that's us, right? We're those people. We're in that camp. So we're not talking about Christians who sin. We're not talking about Christians who struggle with sin. We're not talking about backsliding. We're not talking about a crisis of faith or whatever. We're talking about an extreme situation and then later he's going he's to mention to them, they've never seen this. It has not happened amongst them. So it's very extreme. Understand that. Secondly, he, uses, he takes this extreme situation and he uses an agricultural illustration to illustrate it. You know, we, all the time, um, a good teacher will illustrate things. They'll state something, and then they'll use an illustration that brings, kind of helps people remember it. It brings light to it, helps them understand it. And this is exactly what he's doing here. He's doing this in verse 7 and 8. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those 
for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God, but land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. And this is the, this is the two verses I feel like most often people don't address, and they bring great clarity to what he's just said. Let me explain that. Um, because I say it because basically what I read and what I hear is most people say, well, that's hell and that's that. Because they say, you know, they say, oh, well, look, burned, fire, it's hell. And that's, that's as deep as they get. And I think they miss something here. This is an agricultural illustration to people who, by and large, are agricultural people. They understand that. Even for people who lived in cities like Jerusalem or Rome, they understood agriculture better than most of us would understand agriculture because it's just a part of their life in so many ways. So what is he saying? What does that passage say? It says God sends rain, okay? It says the land is watered. The, the land receives the benefit of the rain. The land produces vegetation. Things grow. When you water, things grow. Now, the problem is when you water, things that you want to grow don't always grow there, okay? I'm trying to get grass to grow in my front lawn. I have a front lawn that has been cursed. There is a curse upon the land. I have tried different things. I have asked lawn experts for help. I have rototilled up the whole, half of the whole front lawn, put down uh, new good organic dirt, planted seeds, watered like a maniac, right? And what happens? Weeds, weeds happen. I get so little grass and I get so much crap in my lawn and I get so mad and I'm trying again. You know, I'm like Sisyphus pushing that rock up that hill and then down it comes. That's a, that's a, you know, that's a picture of hell. A person that p- pushes a rock up a hill and it ne- never quite makes it. That's what I feel like with my lawn. What has that got to do with this? I don't know, but it was good venting. No, it does have something to do with this because... Things grow, sometimes good crops, sometimes thorns and thistles, weeds, right? And so what happens? This is the one thing I haven't done to my lawn yet, and I'm thinking of it. It gets burned. It gets burned. Verse 8, but the land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. And in the end, it will be burned. Now, farmers burn their land, their crops, all the time. They burn the land. Let me ask you something. When they burn the land, does the land get burned up so there's nothing? No, just in case you're not agricultural. When they burn the land, the dirt is still there. The land is still there. In this illustration, the person is the land. The person who has fallen is the land. The vegetation are their deeds, their actions, the things they do. And what do they do? They burn the vegetation. That's how that works. And so we have to remember, see, that changes everything. The land doesn't get burned up. And he includes this little phrase that's very interesting and is in danger of being cursed. And that means they're coming close. It's near. 
brought to the edge, but not quite there. That's what that word means. And so when they burn the land, they don't burn the soil. Now, think about the context again. The writer has shared with them not to drift like the Israelites did in Numbers 14. We just talked about that. Numbers 14, sin and the spies, blah, 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 all that stuff. And God said, nope, you're gonna wander for 40 more years. Did God cut them off and say, you're not my people anymore? No, he still led them. The ones that refused, he still led them. He still fed them. He still worked. But he just said, you've missed something because of your unbelief. You've missed something because you didn't trust me. At the time when it was most important to trust me, you didn't. They did something extreme. They did not stop being the people of God. I think if you want to phrase it in that way, they didn't, st- they didn't necessarily lose their salvation. They lost their earthly rest. And in that passage where he talks about that, he says to Christians, there's an earthly, there's a rest for you that is here on earth. There is a rest for you. Don't lose it. Don't miss it. And I think this is a, this passage in number 14 is analogous to this passage because he's already referenced it. And there are other passages that can shed light on this. And I want to read you one. This is, this is a, and it's a little long, but hang with me. And this is 1 Corinthians 3. This is talking to Christians absolutely Christians. By the grace of God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it, but each one should build with care. For if anyone can lay any foundation other than one already laid, which is Jesus Christ, for no one can lay any foundation, wow, that was a big slip, other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Verse 12, if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, stubble, Their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, yet yet will be saved. Even though only as one escaping through the flames. What is he talking about? And it's referenced again in another passage, the Bema Seat of Christ. It is the judgment seat for Christians. Salvation is not what's being judged. In the Bema Seat of Christ, what's being judged is works. It's works. What did you do for me? What did you do? When I led you to do certain things, did you do it? He said some things that you did, some things you did, it was all about you. It was me, 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 and those will burn up. There's no reward for that but when you do things for me, he says, there's reward. Those are things that are gold and silver and precious stones, and there's reward. So he's talking to Christians. He's talking to Christians, very much like this passage. Some works will go up in flames and some will come through. Now, I know what happens here. I know what you're thinking because I'm thinking it too. We immediately think of someone we love a wayward spouse, a wayward child, a wayward friend. This is a scary passage in those kind of things. But I want you to see here, in the end, and I love this about the writer of the book of Hebrews, even in the darkest passage, he brings hope. He brings hope. And and here, I don't like to mock. I'm I'm gonna, all right? Uh, A couple of guys that I read 
they said at the end of this, they said, obviously, this guy does not know, the writer of Hebrews, does not know anything about agriculture because everyone knows that when you burn up the land, it revitalizes the land. All farmers do that. And I read that and I thought, so the first thing that occurs to you is to, is to, is to knock on, to, to, to give a hard time to the writer of Hebrews rather than thinking maybe there's something being taught in this. Maybe there's something being taught in this. Maybe he's trying to say, Sometimes when the land burns up, it rejuvenates the land and people turn around. There's always hope because we can't know. He's giving us an extreme case. You can't ever look at any person and say, that person fits that case. Trust me, I've tried, right? So we can't know. And so he's trying to tell them there's sometimes Hope springs forth. So he uses an extreme situation. He uses an agricultural illustration, and now it's an encouraging affirmation, and I just rhyme those things like a big dog. All right. It doesn't happen very often. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. See, he's saying to them, I know this is hard and I know this is extreme and I know this, this is not you. This is not you. And he says, he says, dear friends, let me tell you, um, that word is dearly, beloved. That word's a very tender word. It's a very loving word. He's saying, I love you. I love you. Trust me. I'm convinced. I know without a shadow of a doubt that this is not you. This is an extreme. We know you, he's saying. We know your salvation. We've seen you. And then he tells them, for those, they're struggling. He says, God is not unjust. I know that's the first thing that happens sometimes in our minds. Why, God? Why is this happening? We're seeing that. We're seeing that in our church. We have people going through incredibly difficult situations where the easiest thing to do is to say, why? Why my daughter? Why my son? That's not fair. And he's saying, God is, he's telling them, God is not unjust. He's telling them, God sees He knows, and he knows what you have done. He knows your work. He knows your love. And I think a key thought here that gets overlooked as people argue about this passage, he's telling them the love that you have shown him as you serve people. He says, God sees that. Do you think about this? When you give, whether it's giving in a church or it's giving to other, other groups, when you give, God sees that. He sees what you're doing for other people. When you take food to people, um, uh, met this week, a couple in our church, their daughter 
two-year-old daughter has brain cancer and sitting in their living room and just hearing them say, this church, this church has been there for us like we never expected. We see God, we see how God has organized events for us to be here at this time because of what this church has done in our lives. Food shows up, gifts are given, people we don't even know. That's how it's supposed to be. That's how it's supposed to work. And when you do things like that, when you serve, when you, when you serve um, um, a child whose parent is incarcerated through Angel Tree, when you serve the homeless through our port ministry, when you serve in the nursery, when you serve in children's church or kids club, or when you help clean up or a Bible study you're in or a mission support that you do or disaster relief that you get involved in, that list goes on and on. When you do those things for other people, God says, you're doing it for me. I see it. I see it. I'm so pleased with that. Matthew 25. Um, I'm sorry, there it is. <laughs> Verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in? When did we see you needing clothes and we clothed you? When did we see you sick, Jesus? When did we see you in prison and go visit you? And the king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. You did it for me. I love that. He sees. God is not unjust. He's watching. He's seeing. He's careful. He's taking note. And he's pleased. He loves it. And so the writer says then, we want each of you to show that same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. And you remember a week or two, we looked at this exact same word for lazy, and it, and, and, and it was this idea um, to stop moving, to stop pushing, to stop trying. And here it is again, don't rest on your laurels. Don't serve some and then just become complacent. Say, I've done my part. It's not good for you, and it's not good for others with whom you might be a blessing to. And he's going to address this later. I mentioned that. But don't ever think you're not needed here at this church. Everyone here is needed. And everyone here, I firmly believe this, every person here this morning is here because God wanted you here. He could have stopped you. There are people who are not here today who were planning on being here today. And for whatever reason, God stopped them. He knows what he's doing. I trust him on that. But you're here because God wants you to be here. And you're here because you bring something to the table that is needed in this place. Every single person. No one here is worthless. And so what is he saying to them? He's saying, so finish strong. Don't quit. And this is where I think sometimes we can lose sight. People get so, let me tell you, the, the vitriol, the anger that I saw amongst people discussing this passage was astounding to me. I'm just like, come on, people. We're talking about Jesus, you know. And he's telling them, look, God, is, God sees. God is not unjust. He loves what you're doing. When you serve others, it's like you're serving him. And he, get, he, he sees that and he loves it. 
He loves it. So don't quit. Finish strong. And this is what, man, just getting personal. This is what I want. I know a lot of you think I'm in my early 50s, but I'm 67 years old. Stunning, right? I see, I see the shock. I see the shock. You have grandkids? That's amazing, right? I'm 67 years old. And you know, when you start getting this old, you start thinking about finishing. And as soon as I mention that to any one of my kids, don't talk about dying. We don't want to hear that. We don't want to hear that. But it's just being, and it's not in a morbid way, not in a depressing way. I want to keep pushing until I die. I don't want to get lazy. I don't want to stop. I don't want to rest on laurels. I don't want to say, well, I've done enough. I'm pretty tired. No, I want to keep pushing. I want to keep going until the day I die. That's what I want. Because my greatest fear in life right now is that I will not finish well. I don't want to bring any shame to the cause of Christ. I read, a, I read a story not too long ago about a guy who got amnesia, and he was this meek and mild-mannered guy, and all of a sudden he started cussing like a sailor. Why is it sailor? I don't know exactly, but we have, we have some Navy people. Well, I'll ask you later. There must be something about being on a ship that just makes you good at it. I don't know. That's right. And yeah, I want to go up to somebody here who is in the Navy. Are you really good at cursing? Because I want to know, right? <laughs> I'm afraid I'll do that. I'm afraid I'll be that guy, right? And my wife tells me, Bob, you won't because you don't curse. And I'm like, yeah, but they're in there. <laughs> it's not like, it's not like somebody uses a curse word and I go, I've never heard that, <laughs> Right? I mean, even sometimes, you know, sometimes we do that. I call it Christian cursing. We slide it a little bit, you know, so that people kind of know, but they don't, you know, like, like Farfignugan. I'll lay out a Farfignugan every once in a while. Just let people know I'm really upset. No, that's not true. <laughs> but I want to finish well. I want to keep moving till the end. I want to keep pushing forward. I want to be moving forward the day I die and then just gloriously run into the arms of Jesus. That's what I want. That's what I want. And this is what he's saying. Do it. You got it. You know, a little earlier, he used that word in this book. He used the word today. He says, today's the day. Today's the day. Today's the day for all of us. And some of you are going, wait, you said that last week and the week before. I know, but it's still, today's the day. Maybe you're here, right? You're a Christian, and maybe this feels a little uncomfortable. You go, oh, Bob, I really haven't been doing what I want. You know, I'm a little worried. Maybe I'm that guy, that person. Well, let me tell you something. If you're worried about it, you're not. You're not. Because that person can't. They don't, even, they don't even think about it. It's not in their brain anymore. They're gone. They're gone so far. That's what he's trying to tell us. If you're worried about it, it's a good sign. But don't push it away. Because that's what happens to lead to that. He's telling them this is, in the long run, the logical end to drifting. Don't go there, so don't drift. And so when you sense things, act on it. Now, maybe you're here and all of this, you go, this is weird. I did not expect this when I came to visit this church. And I understand that. But it's talking about a relationship. This is the most, this is, 
the key, I think, oh, I say key a lot, don't I? This is really important because it is a relationship with Jesus Christ. It is not me, you know, trying to earn his favor. I can't. And he's already given it all to me. Book of Colossians, Paul says, you got it all. You got it all. You've become adopted. Now you have an inheritance. Oh, boom, boom. He just goes over these things. You've got it. It's been given to you. Now start acting like it. But it starts with a decision. I seem, and, and for me, I, I saw my need for a savior. I saw what he had accomplished in his, my salvation that he was willing to give to me through his death and his burial and his resurrection. And I decided I'm all in. I'm all in. I love how the Apostle Paul sometimes uses illustrations from things like the horse races and poker and stuff like that. Not exactly poker, but dice and stuff. He uses illustrations. And when I was a little kid, oh, I've told this before. When I was a little kid, my family, my dad, we, our whole family played poker. We played penny ante poker because pennies were worth something way back you know, like in the early 1800s. And, and, uh, and the problem was, I could hardly ever win because when you're eight years old and you got two older brothers and your mom and your dad, they can read your face. You know, I'll get, I'll, say, I'll take three. I get my three cards. I'm, <laughs> you know, and then I go try to hide it, right? So I go all in and everybody folds because they know my, my brother, my brother goes, nah, I know what you got. <laughs> he folds, they all fold, but I went all in. Everything's on this. That's what happens with Jesus Christ. Jesus says, let's go all in together on this. He went all in to his death. He says, I want you to go all in. And see, this is where I think we, we run into this problem in our culture where so many, such a huge percentage of our, of, huge percentage of our, our population says that they're Christians, they're saved. The problem is, for many of them, they, they haven't gone all in. They're not interested in going all in. What do they want? They want to get out of jail free card. They want fire insurance. That's what they want. But they haven't gone all in. And that's what's important here. Because what happens when you go all in? There's life change. There's radical life change. It may be over time, but there is radical life change. That's why Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you better count the cost. Because he said there is a cost in being a disciple. You need to decide. So we have a passage that's difficult. It's difficult. And, and there may be people here that disagree with me, and I'm, I'm fine with that. It doesn't bother me at all, honest. You may dis disagree with me, and, and that's okay. But this passage is serving as a warning to people to not drift, and then it serves as an encouragement to them. God watches. God sees. He knows what you're doing. He's not unjust. He loves you. He loves you. That's why even early on, it says to their hurt, they're doing these things. They're hurting themselves. It's not like God's going, oh, you're wandering, smash. He's not doing that. He's saying, you're wandering, please don't go. This is gonna hurt you. This is gonna be so difficult for you. There's a better way, trust me. And if you keep wandering, the smash is your own smash because you've done it to yourself. And then he gives them hope. He says, look, get out there. Love people, share with people, serve people. He says, when you do that, you're serving me. It's as if I personally 
It's as if Jesus Christ personally at that port ministry is receiving a meal. Here's your dinner for tonight. Jesus, think of it that way. It's like Jesus Christ himself personally is receiving a, a, a present for Christmas. I don't know how that works exactly. Um, he's receiving a present in the name of his parent who is incarcerated. And it's like you say, here you go, Jesus. Here's your present. You're serving him. When you, when you minister in kids' class, or nursery, whatever, what are you doing? You're serving. And it's like, it's like you're saying, Jesus, I, I'm going to love your child for, for an hour and a half almost. I'm going to love your child for an hour and a half so that you can sit. This really falls apart when you start talking about sit and, and grow from your word. But I mean, it's that whole idea. When you do that, you're serving Jesus. It's, it, he's, he says it. It's clear. It's black and white. Just bam, you're serving Jesus. And he says, and I see it, and I love it. Keep going. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word shakes us sometimes. Your word grabs us gets in our face. And we need that, Jesus. Today is the day. I mean, we need this. We need to stop occasionally and say, what am I doing with my life? What am I doing with my relationship with you? Do I have a relationship with you? What's going on? It's, it shakes us and yet encourages us too. We have a God who loves us deeply. He watches us. He loves what we're doing as we, as we serve and love others. And it's as if we're doing it to his very face and he's receiving it. God, we thank you for the privilege of being called your children, daughters and sons of the most high God, that we have been adopted into this family and now we receive the blessing of being a family member. We are brothers and sisters with Jesus and we are brothers and sisters, he says, of whom he is not ashamed. And so Lord, we give you the praise. We give you the honor. We give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.